This is Ferdinando Cito Filomarino. Hi, I am Sayonpu Mukdipong. And you're listening to Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya. Hey, Ben. How you doing? I am doing super extra swell. I have a a project that I'm not able to talk about yet, but things are happening. Things are definitely happening. I don't know what it is about the fall, but, you know, there's a bunch of cameras that are about to get announced and released and things. I mean, it's it's nearly September, and uh, boy, it's about to get interesting all over the industry. NAB is in October, right? Uh, NAB is coming up, but you know what? I don't think many people are going to go to that, but there will be a bunch of announcements and this. Yeah, I mean, that's when everyone's going to roll out their new shit. We're going to get to we're going to have all kinds of new shit to talk about after NAB. That's right. And then at some point you're going to have some new shit to talk about. You're going to talk about whatever the thing is you can't talk about. Exactly. I can't wait to tell people about it. I'm very excited about it. And the process is happening and it looks like it's going to not going to it's absolutely getting made. I'm pretty sure. Okay, good. That's great. You, you never know till it's actually released and people can consume it in the public, but it's a thing and it will hopefully be happening soon. So who do we have on the show? Oh man, I love it when we get directors and DPs together and we have a wonderful director DP combination today. We have the creative team behind Beckett. We have the director Ferdinando Sita Fila Marino and also the DP Sayumbo Muktiprom. Both of them are wonderful, and we spoke transcontinentally across the world uh, for this interview. And, you know, first of all, I'm just going to say, though, if you haven't seen Beckett, go turn on your Netflix, go watch Beckett. If you if you want to see a great movie, watch Beckett. This is, this, to me, it's like, this is the type of movie that Netflix should be making. And uh, it's fun in a thriller, sort of suspenseful sort of thing, even though <laughs> John David Washington gets put through, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a tough movie for his character. His character has a tough time. And I got to say, I think it's, the, it's, it's my favorite role I've ever seen him in. Of course, you know, we were talking just a minute ago that he's in Tenet, and I guess somewhat controversially, not everyone enjoyed Tenet so much, I think. But, uh, you know, I, I thought it was okay. But this movie, I love him in this movie. I think it's, it's fantastic. Every time I, I look at him, I'm like, that's Denzel Washington's son. What the hell? Like, it's just crazy. But yeah, he's just an amazing uh, performer. And I don't mean to contradict you, but I'm glad Netflix made this. But it's also a movie that I wish I had seen in a theater. I think it uses the full screen really well. I bet it would have been fun to see it on a big screen. And uh, I mean, Netflix sometimes releases stuff to the big screen, but uh, especially in the uh, pandemic era that we're in, a lot more stuff just goes straight to Netflix. But it is a gorgeous looking movie. It's an amazing thriller. It's always fun just to see like a solid original. It, it is a genre genre film it's a thriller but it's just so well done and it looks so amazing so it, it I, I can't wait to hear your interview uh yeah you're gonna get to in just a minute and uh, before we get to the close focus we're gonna do some listener mail we got a lot of comments that have been coming in and we have just been ignoring them now i think for months and so we've selected a few choice ones here and we're going to uh we're gonna read them uh right i've now. heard none of these yet so i'm i'm excited to hear what people are saying all right. They so, say, uh, fire that Ben Rock guy and, and bring back Bill Totolo. I think that a lot of them probably say that. Okay, so the first comment comes from Miliux, uh, which I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. It came in off of Instagram. 
And uh, he writes, hi, first of all, I'm sorry for your loss. This must have been uh, in regards to uh, Dan Neese. Mm. Uh, and so he, he writes, uh, the episode was very useful to meet Dan and it felt like a great homage. But I'm writing y- you both because it's been a while now and I wanted to share this with you. I came across the Cinepod in the first days of these pandemic times and listened backwards. Every DP I knew and a few months ago I discovered myself waiting for the Cinepod and listening specifically for the part of the short ends and close focus. I share it with you because no in way. this episode... Really? That's what he writes. That's what he says. Somebody wants to hear you and me run our yaps. All right. That is exactly what it says. I share it with you because in this episode, you didn't have one. And I thought, isn't there a way to listen to just those parts of your, uh, of the show? Yeah. It sounds like they, they want to hear us yak, which, uh, I, I had not expected that. I've never expected that, but if they want, we could just like get on a conference call with them and they could just hear you and me run our, our stinking yaps for a few hours. Well, I mean, we could try it. We could try a we could try a special episode that that isn't an interview, and we talk about other stuff. But I, I don't know. I don't know how popular that will be. I mean, I think really, you know, okay. I'm I'm not trying to toot our own horn though. I think we do fine. But I really feel like people tune in for our special guests, and or maybe I tune in for the interviews. I mean, yes, like you know, I to mean, me, that's... to me, the interview is the centerpiece, and this is sort of like you know Mark Marin doing his bit at the beginning of WTF, and I'm like, come on, get to the get to, get the, to the, interview. the interview, get to the interview. Well, at least we didn't have a commercial for like, you know, stamps.com yeah, yeah, or something like that. But anyway, Casper mo- mattress mo- moving on. Uh, we got quite a few comments regarding Dan Neese. We got a nice comment here from uh, Mandy Belcher, who wrote, thank you so much for making this. Dan was one of my best friends. I love him dearly Aww. and we will miss him every day. So, Dan really uh, was. He was just such a wonderful guy. And, and uh, you know, I I wish I knew him better, but I, I met him several times and I was, you know, I, I felt like we were lucky to have him on the show. He was just a, a, a wonderful, funny, hilarious, cool guy. Agree 100 percent. So, Ilya, let's go ahead into close focus. We have some really cool news that is not even slightly covid related. I, I am so excited for this. I'm excited for anything not covid related. I'm excited for this. And you're going to know why in a second. Number one movie in America is Candyman. <laughs> That's right. Candyman. Candyman, Candyman, Candyman. See, there he is. Um, I'm, <laughs> shot, I'm very shot by a friend of the show, John Guglisarian. Yes, quite. A, I remember uh, doing that interview in your office back in the before times. And you're going to get to do it again, I think. Yes, because so. <laughs> I'm going to go see Candyman. Candyman, 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 Candyman. Yeah, um, isn't there a song that, 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 that you sing <laughs> Candyman to? Like, so, Candyman can or something? <laughs> There is. So it it is a noteworthy achievement. Whenever horror, I mean, it's not a noteworthy achievement that a horror movie is number one at the box office. You and I both know horror movies basically prop up the entire industry. That's a bunch of slackers who want to make a bunch (laughs) of stupid dramas about people falling in love. Horror movies are the real movies. The, The thing that's noteworthy about it, and it's both great news, and I feel like it is sad news that this is the truth. Nia DaCosta, director, first time in history a black woman has directed the number one movie at the box office. I think that should have happened 50 years ago, 70 years ago. We shouldn't, it, sh- it shouldn't have to be newsworthy, but it is awesome that she did it. 2021. It's the I year. Mean, it's, it's a little bit like when Rachel Morrison was nominated for Best Cinematography. Rachel Morrison, amazing cinematographer. The fact that she was the first woman ever nominated for, for Best Cinematography in what was that 2017 it's like yeah 
like it, it's it was kind of insane to me but it's great because it's opening up doors not just for Nia da Costa but it's opening up doors for other women of color other directors who uh, as much as I I don't need the competition in life but uh, other non-white dudes out there making movies and I I also like I remember when A Wrinkle in Time came out and there was kind of this controversy because it was a hundred million dollar movie that was directed by Ava DuVernay and I remember it was like the first time a woman of color had directed a hundred million dollar movie and also it didn't do well at the box office and there was all this kerfuffle about can women of color make blockbuster movies and it was just like what what kind of and I remember like serious think pieces on that on that subject and it made me angry because it's like look if, if if James Cameron made a movie that flopped, nobody would be like, well, let's pack it up for the white dudes. Yeah, white nobody dudes. Nobody cares. <laughs> you know, it's white like... Dude, it, white it, dudes it, can't Ava get a movie to open. Had, had Ava DuVernay like, not um, earned the right to make an expensive experiment at that point? You know, like, it's just, it's just idiotic to me when they say that. But I appreciate it now with Candyman that that flag has been planted in the, in the positive direction. And I sincerely hope that opens up doors for a lot of other uh, women of color and basically any group that hasn't been fully represented behind the camera on a regular basis to be able to get behind the camera. Moreover, I'm, I'm assuming that it means that there are African-American girls in middle school right now who are like, I'm going to go make movies. And, and I hope they make horror movies because they're the best movies. Uh, you are so gleeful. You're you're so gleeful that Candyman is number one too, though. I know I know that just yeah. because you love it when a horror film does well. Well, I lo- I love it when a horror film does well because I feel like there's this shitty belief that horror movies are a debased genre, and I think that there's a lot of incorrect thinking around horror movies. I think that there's thinking that. Horror movies are all aimed at. This is a longer rant than I I need to go on, but I'll go on a. On, <laughs> no, on I my want sh- you to go on. The, look, we we just had a fan write to us and say we want he wants the all yakety yak episode. Okay, Here's- well I'll, I'll I'll do it then. I'm, I'm gonna the gloves are coming off. I have felt over the years, and and this is like in the course of trying to make horror movies that oftentimes. Uh, studio executives and I and and it is less the case now than it has ever been since I've been working in the business and I've been working in the business like 21 22 years but there's this stupid belief uh, just a dumb dumb stupid idiotic belief that a horror fan is this imagined 15 year old boy who's kind of not that smart and is white and will one day be a serial killer and all he wants to do now is look at boobs and 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 I believe that that, that there's a perceived that's the perceived target And um, when we made The Blair Witch Project, which is a movie that, you know, we can all agree is not a tits and gore movie, the studio that released it and then fast tracked a sequel, that was part of the part of the agenda was boobs and gore. And it was like, what about the first movie made you think that anyone wanted the boobs and gore version? And I'm not like I'm not knocking movies that that contain gore. I love a big gory movie. I'm not knocking movies that have nudity in them. I just think that there's like when you look at the at the actual demographic breakdown of who are fans of horror movies, they skew older and they skew more female than anyone ever thinks. 
Mm. And if you've ever been to a horror convention and you see the people who show up who are the mega fans, it's not a bunch of 15 year old boys. It's across genders and ages and races. And, and, and so to me, a movie like the first Candyman was was a very inclusive uh, horror movie. And the fact that they <laughs> hired every a, ethnicity got killed in it. What, what made it so inclusive? No, <laughs> I no, it was. Uh, well, I mean, honestly, it's because it takes place in Cabrini Green in Chicago and, you know, that it has a lot more characters that were african-american and also Candyman himself is like i mean even though it's written by clive barker a british guy it's based on a clive barker story they've taken it and turned it into like folklore from you know like an urban legendy kind of thing and now mm. they've taken that and gone one step further and given the reins of it to a black woman and also you know jordan peele heavily involved and jordan peele uh when get out came out you kept hearing the term elevated horror and i i get a little frustrated about that because there's bad in every genre like sure. I, but like the good horror movies and we all know what some of them are uh, and I could make you a generous list of them are thoughtful, well-written, well-directed with solid cinematography. And how many of the cinematographers that we've had on here who went on to do Oscar nominated work or even just like very respected, huge work or big TV, whatever, like got their start making genre films. To me, it, it, it is the heart of our business. It's true. We used to make a real point of calling out everyone who had done a, a Red Shoes Diaries or had done yeah. some sort of a very schlocky uh, horror movie. But I don't think we really do that anymore because it's not atypical. When you go through anyone's IMDb, it's like, oh, yeah, look at that. Oh, yeah, yeah. But they, I love it when, when yeah. uh, like when we had Russell Carpenter on and it's like I went through his filmography and it's like, I forgot he made The Lawnmower Man. Mm-hmm. How awesome is that? And that's the number one thing I do when I find out that we're going to interview somebody and I don't know their entire, I mean, I don't know anyone's entire filmography off the top of my head so i'll like scroll down to you know to the bottom of the imdb page to see like where did they start that's usually where i look and i start constructing the story of what i think their story is and then my interview is sort of testing the hypothesis of of what that is and seeing like you know where did they come from and where did they start and yeah you're right for a while we noticed that a lot of people either had roger corman or you know low budget horror movies or something like red shoe diary you know eventually we talked to people like larry fong who started in music videos but to me i just think that people tend to shit all over horror movies because a lot of them are lower budget and they don't have big stars in them and they don't have as much to work with but for that very reason, so many of them transcend their deficits and become things like Night of the Living Dead, which is like a real social commentary. Science fiction is the same way. Science fiction is kind of the expensive version of that, but they both get to a social commentary by like showing us an exaggerated version of reality. And what I have noticed in the horror world, and this is, I'll end my rant here, but like, uh, you know, subscribing to Fangoria currently, like when I was a teenager, a lot of the horror stuff that you would see, which was probably fratty dude bro-ish stuff. And, and, you know, it was like the movie would start and you'd be like, okay, that character is going to be naked and that character is going to get killed first. And you'd be kind of playing that game with the, especially the, the crazy low budget stuff. But what you're seeing, I think, nowadays with horror is that there are more women there are more people of color there's more lgbtq people in that world and they're telling stories that have social impact using horror as kind of the delivery mechanism for a social message and they're doing it very cleverly and i think that there's like i feel like we're kind of in a golden age of it right now we don't even really appreciate it because it's easier to make a good looking movie than it ever has been before so people who have low budgets can actually make stuff that holds up when you put it on a big screen End of rant. 
I think you're right. I think we might be heading into a horror renaissance right now, at, at, as it were. So this is like the, you know, American new wave of horror. So, I, uh, I, I don't. Yeah. I mean, I think I think it might be like you, we might look back on it like Italian neorealism or the French new wave or the uh, the independent movement that starts in the late 80s and goes through, you know, like 2007, 2008. I think that there's a lot and there's a lot of respect for genre stuff that goes out and, and takes those kinds of risks and, and sort of a little bit of what's gone is the extremely expressionistic like you know I bring up Stuart Gordon a lot the extremely expressionistic reanimator kind of movies where it's like just garish and bright and but then you know even as I say that I think about Pano Cosmatos's movie with Nicolas Cage Mandy which is like as expressionistic as a film can be so you know I'm wrong well, you know what? In some ways, thriller is definitely a genre film as well. And For Beckett, sure. which we're about to dive into the interview right right now about that. You know, if you haven't seen Beckett and you are within the sound of my voice, please, you know, after you listen to this interview, go watch Beckett. Really, really, you know, watch this movie and get back to us. Send us an email. Let us know what you think. Let it, you know. Yeah, t- it's awesome. I, I, I can't I can't recommend it highly enough. Do a search in Netflix. I know it's easy to get sucked into some baking show, but yeah, look up Beckett. <laughs> watch For Beckett. You. Well, I'm, some some people do. It's always it's always the first thing on the damn Netflix. Is like it's hey, because it's, great, it's, it's analyzing you. I never get baking shows recommended. <laughs> you probably get edgy award winning movies or something I, I, like I do, that. I do get a lot of those. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So without further ado, here is our interview. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. My guests today are Ferdinando Asito Filomarino and Sayumbo Muktipram. I'm still mortified that I may have just ruined both of your names here. Uh, being named Ilya, I know what it's like to not have most people be able to, to get it right, but I'm going to strive to get it right in this interview. You are part of the creative team, the director and cinematographer of the new movie Beckett, which has just uh, debuted on Netflix. And I have to just start off by giving you a little praise for this movie. I love this movie. It's really, really wonderful. And there's so many places for us to go in this conversation. But what I think I'd, I'd most like to do actually is ask for Ferdinando to you to give a, a just a very, very brief, because I don't think most of our listeners will have yet seen this. Can you just give the very highest level overview of what the movie's about? Beckett is about an American man who is a, simply a tourist in Greece and he is just enjoying some time with his girlfriend when something tragic happens to them. And then as he is processing that, for the reasons he is oblivious of, people start shooting at him and he finds himself on the run for his life and trying to figure out what is happening around him in this uh, southern Mediterranean country where he doesn't know the language and, uh, or much of what is going on in it at the time which turns out to be quite complex. Uh, The movie, and I I know that you're going to probably hear this quite a bit, is a thriller. And it has, I would say, in the most lovingly way, Hitchcockian elements to it. And layers of this movie just sort of unfold in front of you in perhaps the most naturalistic manner possible. It, It doesn't feel like every single moment the camera is flying around or the acting is in such a way that anything is over the top. It is so controlled and so real. Can you tell me about just the idea from both the performances and the look of the movie, if this is what you're going for, if you're going for the feeling of realism throughout the entire project? 
I mean, Hitchcock is inevitably, I would say, in our DNA as filmmakers, whether we like it or not, whether we know it or not. Definitely, when thinking about a man, a normal man, let's say, in an extraordinary situation, even more so, because Hitchcock built or was responsible for making the most important canon of that type of filmmaking. However, you know, when thinking about this movie in the first place and establishing its tone, I always thought that we should stay away from the heightened element of what is definitely crucial in the Hitchcock films. Thinking, for example, most canonically of North by Northwest, there is something kind of absurd about the movie. All the things that happen are definitely unbelievable. And it's all very spectacular. Uh, meaning that spectacle comes before everything else. And that movie works beautifully in that sense, almost like a dream movie, because these amazing set pieces follow one after the other. But in thinking about this movie, I like the idea of grounding everything and of not being quite so heightened, but of finding a, a character that would be dramatic and relatable and therefore also a tone that would feel more realistic, grounded, gritty and uh, in some ways believable too both in terms of what inspired the literal plot but also in terms of what happens when he fights and when he injures himself and you know he runs out of breath after a little bit because that's just what happens when you run a lot he sweats he bleeds like you know most people would uh, so that, that definitely that was the point of view of how to approach this film of course, you're, you're referring to Beckett, uh, John David Washington, who uh, I think this is my, my favorite performance now I've ever seen from him now. And speaking of the torture and realism that you put him through, and I, I don't mean torture in the literal sense, but he's very put upon and beaten up by the end of the movie. And you feel every single moment of that, I think, because all of your action sequences, all of your sequences of violence or, or terror for him feels more grounded in reality than uh, almost any other type of movie that you see where people are either indestructible or uh, their wounds are never that bad. You feel everything it looks like with him. And I found myself cringing watching this movie from beginning to end. I want to bring Sayombo into this conversation here because I feel like it's so easy and, and it's not easy, but it's so easy to go the other way with with camera work. It's so easy to use the camera as a tool to maybe overstep or enhance beyond what's playing out in front of it. And you're known for naturalistic cinematography and for motivated lighting and for not trying to draw too much attention to the camera work. And the fact that you're able to do that during scenes of intense, thrilling action and also the sort of breaths that you get to take in between them. I know you shoot on film. I know that it's impossible to do the type of work you're doing without augmenting the lighting, without, you know, adding significant amounts of light because film stock is just not as fast as digital cameras. You don't don't have this capability. Can you talk a little bit about the naturalistic lighting and style that, that comes to this movie, which really doesn't draw a lot of attention to itself, yet feels absolutely uh, restrained and controlled through these, these segments? It feels like, to me, it must be a very difficult balance to make the camera invisible, and you do it as, as good as anyone I've ever seen. Yeah, that, that's correct. I mean, realism that we are going for. So I use my eyes. I use my feeling about places. So I have to learn about, you know, the location itself. I have to memorize the, the kind of lighting on that location and trying to 
figure it out. What is the problem? So we have to deal with the problem first. Then if we can overcome that kind of thing, we can create a lot of things, I think. So for me, it's you're living at that moment. You know, you, you see things happen and then, and then you made it. So that while you don't force anything, like you are in a, in a band, you know, you, you cannot play too loud, too soft, or kind of thing like that. What Sayumbu yeah. says reminds me of something that happened, uh, my realization when we were working on my first feature called Antonia. Uh, of course, I, I thrived to work with Sayumbu because he was my favorite DP in the world, much because I, I'd seen the movies that he shot in Thailand. But, and we were shooting an exterior in Milan and we were about to shoot the scene and I see a huge pulley on the floor, completely out, of, like not where we were shooting the scene, somewhere else. And I'm like, what, what, the, what, what is that doing like 100 meters away from us? And it was like, well, because at this specific time, the sun is reflecting on the sidewalk and bouncing on the tree. So I put the pulley and the bouncing is more. <laughs> so, you know, he didn't like have to invent it. He saw it and he enhanced it. I think you have to do that. I mean, you, you have to, or, or you just physically can't get enough light sometimes to have uh, the exposures that you want. So it's it sounds to me like your lighting package consists of redirecting or, or shaping a lot of natural light and then augmenting that too to, to build up the exposure. Is that is that a fair description or, or how, how would you describe it? Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. I mean, I mean, I started the location. I started the lighting and, and trying to lead it at least as I can. It means that I try not to lighting it, not to light it, but of course I have to. So if I have to do it, I, I try to make it the way that it's invisible. That's the point. But most, you know, every shot, it's all, it lit, you know, yeah. It has to be. And I don't mean to, to keep talking about the lighting, but I think that the lighting is so wonderful. I feel like I have to here. I feel like you light environments. And I know that when we talk to cinematographers, some of them light actors. They light the actor in the space and it's set up for a shot. By the way that you shoot with the with uh, lots of wides and, and movement around, which is absolutely seamless, my feeling is you've lit the environment that the actors live in, and you've done that in, in a way that any sort of tweaking that you're doing when you, if you have to move in for close-ups or coverage must be fairly minimalistic because they have such a huge playground, it seems like, to, to work in. They have so much room. Yeah, to, yeah, to that's, that's correct. That's correct. That's just my rule of thumb. The actors at that moment, he owned the space, not me. So I have to give them space. But okay, I want this a little bit. Is okay for you, right? So that kind of thing. Yeah, so collaboration again, I think. Fernando, I want to ask you about the collaboration with your production designer, Elliot Hofsittler. And I'm assuming Sayumbo had to work very close together with yourself to create the color palette for this movie because it, it very much has a, a color palette. And I, I don't know how intentional certain aspects of the colors of this movie are. And of course, I'm sure color grading comes into it as well. But I want to ask you about orange. I feel like an orange, almost like an orangey red sort of color is a particular accent or theme that comes across it. The, and it's like the hoodie sweater that Beckett wears, the car that is his salvation, even the color of the opening and closing credits. There's this like this orangey red that, that sort of permeates the whole movie. Was this intentional? Was this something that you guys thought from the beginning you wanted to integrate into the movie? Or am I just in left field here and, and seeing something that's not there? First of all, I find anything that 
somebody sees in a movie is legitimate. Okay. So it's fine. <laughs> but look, I, uh, one of my main inspirations in general is photography. Meaning when, for example, when thinking about the look of a film or even content of scenes, I love watching movies. I watch movies every day, but I like to look at photography. And for this movie, because of the grounded tone we already mentioned, I looked at a lot of street photography, a lot of American street photography, thinking, for example, of Stephen Shore or William Eggleston. I, I just accumulated so many images that I found inspiring from that. And there was always something just obviously so real and documentary-like to them. But two things. One was the specific gaze and the personality of those photographers. In the case of Stephen Shore, perhaps a touch of irony and of Eggleston, perhaps something else in the composition and definitely always an accent of color which brought a different meaning to the picture so whether intentional or not intentional i find that probably that inspiration made itself into the movie obviously the hoodie is a very important prop in the movie it's more than just a piece of costume because it holds significance to the relationship between Beckett and April so i find that that probably happens because of our inspirations and in terms of the general color palette, again, going back to that tone, obviously Greece, Greece in the season we were there to shoot the film in, spoke to us. We had to adapt to what Greece told us and create the world that we would only be able to create in that specific moment in Greece. We couldn't impose your color palette on a movie that's all exteriors in a very specific moment. So it's a dance between inspiration ideas and location in this case uh even the the missing child posters seem to have this same sort of burnt orange color in, in them it's like I, I felt like i was watching this i don't usually see this in in so many movies but i felt like production design really and and then even the credits I, of the I did movie ask all, all... for that poster to have exactly the same color as his hoodie yes oh really okay <laughs> as as with the well, credits yes uh-huh. All right. Well, that's very cool. I, I think it, it's a wonderful, seamless sort of thing that that ties him into the into the world in a very subtle way. And it's it's, it's wonderfully subtle. Yes. Yeah, subtle, um, subtle is the thing. I mean, for us, subtle is the good thing. And I think that's actually that's the sign of, of really wonderfully crafted movies is subtlety. You're inviting the audience to to really pay attention and to absorb every bit of everything that's going on. And uh Sambo, could you speak a little bit about your collaboration? How you like to collaborate with your directors? And uh, I know it's always a, it's a different experience depending on, on who you're, you're working with, but maybe in, in relation to this movie, can you talk a little about collaboration? Yes, of course. It will be different from one director to another. That's the truth. But, I mean, if, if you're trying to listen first, you will get it. You open your ear first, you know, instead of input something, you, you accept it first, and then you analyze it, and then you know what to to deal with, how to cover it with, with other people, with this guy. That's yeah, simple, yeah. you know, it, it's simple at this. Listen first. I think, yes, listening first is, is best, uh, for sure. Is there ever a time when you, f- you feel like you've got a, a spin or a different vision or an idea? When you do collaborate and you say, like, oh, I think we have an opportunity here, how does that process go? How does it go, like, I know this is our scene or our, our, our setup, uh, or are you guys just always in agreement? Do you always feel like this is the best moment, this is the best way to tell oh, this part of the story? No, like, yeah. like sometimes we even do opposite things. Like, remember the shot when we shot in a, in a toilet? I was thinking exactly of the same example. Yeah, see? He, he, he want me to push in. I say, no, we should pull out. 
<laughs> Absolutely. And that's what ha- and I, and as soon as Sayumpu said it, I was like, yeah, you're right. And then we pulled out. We never shot one push in. <laughs> it was that simple. It lasted about the com- the the conflict lasted about 4 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm I'm glad that you guys have such a symbiotic working relationship where you guys are so much on the same page because I know so many people who it's not always the easiest to get your heads aligned. And even when you do sometimes, and I don't think it's second guessing, but people are, they have uh, this, maybe a shared vision, but there's like, there's a hundred different ways to get that shared vision. And it sounds like you guys from the very get go, uh, exactly, exactly on the same page. Two things. One is research and work in preparation. You know, discussing enough scenes, the nature of the movie, the tone, specific locations and their problems and what we need to take away. And the other, of course, is an affinity and taste. And I like to think that Sayumbu and I have very similar tastes in, in, in a lot of aspects of filmmaking and appreciating a certain visual language, uh, which is, I guess, why we started collaborating in the first place. So if the two things are there, if that homework and that uh, affinity is there, then I guess conflicts can last four seconds. I think that's wonderful. And I think that speaks a lot to your uh, collaboration. Can you tell me what you guys uh, have lined up next? Where do you go from here? If you can talk about that, do you have another project that's in the works together or separately? I mean, I personally like to think that I will always work with Sayonpu. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's just very long. It very, it's very long to put a movie together. I'm, I'm you know, I'm writing something, uh, which of course Sayonpu will be one of the first people I, sh- I, I share it with once I'm ready to. Another genre uh, sort of piece, although different from this one. And yeah, I'm, I'm writing, and like I said, always hope to collaborate with Sayonpu. He's my favorite DP. Uh, how how long was the process to get this movie made? I, I assume it took a, quite a while as well, too. So uh, how long did it take for, for Beckett to make it to Netflix? Oh, only about six years. No oh. big deal. <laughs> it's just quick. <laughs> Look, I, uh, I, uh, I started writing the first idea soon after I wrapped my first movie, which was in 2014. And then, you know, it was a long process writing it because I guess it was ambitious for me. Because it's a comp, you know, it's an ambitious story and concept, and uh, it took a few iterations to get it where we wanted to get it, and then it, it took a while to put it together financially and finding the collaborators and the cast because, again, it was ambitious for a director in my position. So it, it took time. It took time, but then you know, we made it. But that is, I think, that's true of independent cinema in general. It's always going to take time and be hard, but. That mix of preparation and instinct eventually made it happen. I think that you guys totally pulled it off, and that's also a, a, a wonderful place for us to leave this interview. Thank you so much for, for being on the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ilya. All right, so that was our interview with uh, Fernando Sita Fila Marino and Sayumbo Muktipram. Thank you so much for being on the show. I hope to have you guys back whenever your next movie uh, gets released. I'm, I'm very excited for that. Yeah, I, ho- I hope Beckett gets its... Uh, I hope a lot of people check it out and it catapults them to uh, to their next thing and it gets bigger and bigger. That's It's always my hope. 
So, Ilya, I, I hear that we have uh, we have to pay some bills today. Oh, we do. So we got to thank our, our wonderful sponsor, Aperture, for helping us pay these bills. Aperture, a good long-term friend of the show, has uh, not just their sort of higher-end, more professional, more professional line of lights. They also have some very, very affordable, more consumer-friendly lights that are in incredibly powerful and uh, that line of lights that I want to talk about today is called Amaran and the, the light in particular I think is is worth mentioning is the 200D. The 200D is a slightly smaller, slightly lighter weight, much less expensive version of like an Aperture 300D. It's a little tiny light and it's daylight balanced and it only takes 200 watts but it shoots out a tremendous amount uh, of lumens and the thing costs $299. It's like, I know it's, it's under 300 bucks. And this light is so incredibly stout. It is just, it it blasts a huge amount of light and you can use, uh, you know, all kinds of accessories and things on it. And of course, if you wanted to buy something like this or to check it out, we keep a ton of them in stock over at hot rod cameras. So if you're inside the Los Angeles area and you're just like, Hey, I want to hear, I want to see that light that Ilya was talking about on the podcast. Uh, you can go into hot rod cameras and we have it and we can do a demo for you. It's kind of incredible. It's lightweight. It's it does have a plastic housing, but it's a very robust plastic. And yeah, it has an umbrella holder built in. So if you really only have like fifteen dollars for a photo umbrella, you can slap that on there and voila, beautiful diffuse light. It's it's really worth taking a look at the Amaran subsection of Aperture's products because it's essentially all of the quality of their higher end lights but in a more affordable price and a slightly lighter weight configuration. And, uh, you know, it's Amaran by Aperture. It's like their, it's their, you know, more affordable line. It's cool. And, and I like that it has like a sexy name instead of just being like the XJ497Y light. Well, it is a 200D and Amaran's sort of like the overall family of products. But yeah, it, it, it also has their app control and all that jazz. Maybe I'm crazy, but 200D sounds like that actually. Like, I mean, I'm sure all the alphanumeric stuff always means something, but uh, 200D isn't that much to remember, I guess is all. You know, no, it's, it, it, it doesn't. It's not one of those long names that just rolls off the tongue, you know, the XJ45, you know. Sassafras Commando. I want the Sassafras Commando. (laughs) So, uh, and it goes without saying, by the way, that if you're in Hollywood or in the Metro LA area and you go to Hot Rod to see a demo of this light, that you should ask for Ilya and rudely demand your T-shirt. You don't have to be rude. You don't have to be rude. No, no, it's not. It's not a bug. It's a feature. You get to be rude. You know, we do reserve the right to refuse service to anyone, Ben. If, If you have people testing me, don't test me. I'll, I'll, right. I'll test back. And I'll give them their test shirt anyway. Him. Test Ilya. <laughs> test him a lot. And now, short ends. So, Ilya, it is our time for our uh, short ends, our also patent pending short ends section. <laughs> is there really a patent pending for this part, too? <laughs> there isn't. There isn't a patent pending for close focus either. I mean, if anyone gets the patent on that, it's George Foyt who named it. But, uh, you know. Hi, George. I never forgot. Ben, what is your pet obsession this week? What is your short end? Okay, so I think I am very late to the party. It is a YouTube channel, and it has uh, 1.65 million subscribers. So oh, man. it stands to reason that some of our listeners are familiar with this, but I just discovered it, and it's called Macro Room. Have you ever seen this? I have not. So I'm, I'm it's this loop. dude whose name is also Ben in Israel, and he does... These very imaginative, you might even say trick shots, 
Some of them will use like a snorkel lens or, or uh, macro lenses or crazy slow-mo. And there's also like some kind of compositing after effects, something like that. There's one where he like breaks an egg and it flips upside down in the pan in slow motion and freezes and then goes back. Or uh, he has this one where he's holding a water balloon and he hits it with a pin in, in at normal speed and in slow motion it it slowly falls down and he rears back with his fist and hits the water with his fist they're very very creative and honestly as i was watching it i was like i firstly i think our listeners uh if you're interested in just the crazy shit you can do with a camera i think macro room which is it's a youtube channel you can go to it right now you'd be fascinated with some of the stuff he does but i also and a lot of it i think i'm pretty sure in my very very brief research of him so Please correct me if I'm wrong. I think he does a lot of commercial cinematography, you know, uh, stuff like that. His lighting is good, but his lensing is is just like really fascinating. Some of the stuff that he does and they're all really short and it's almost like demonstrations of like ideas for for shots. I think if I was making a movie, I might be just looking through his stuff about like, hey, how could I, you know, if I needed a really good moment punctuated, I might find some inspiration in some of the ideas that he's got going on with the various techniques he's playing with. And some of them are just interesting to look at. And you go like, you know, when YouTubers started to become a sensation, I got mad because I'm like, this isn't filmmaking. Cause it was, you know, like people monologuing at the camera and cutting it up and the lighting was bad and it was stupid. But, uh, you know, that was, I guess, early vlogs, but even like, you know, so much of YouTube is cluttered with, you know, unboxing Disney toys, or as I have learned now that I have a child infuriating stuff for children like Blippi, which if you haven't seen Blippi, just don't, just don't even bother. (laughs) But, uh, but it's neat to see somebody using it. And I mean, there's plenty of people on Vimeo and YouTube who do interesting filmmaking techniques or who show you how to do interesting filmmaking techniques. He's not really demoing stuff. He's just like making art that's like two minutes long that it's not a short film driven by a plot. It's just more like he's playing with a visual idea. And I, I found a lot of his videos to be inspiring. And I haven't, you know, like I've been watching a bunch of them, but there's still plenty that I haven't seen yet. That sounds really cool. I, I was totally unaware of this, and uh, I guess I'll have to check it out. It sounds sounds you'll, like fun. You'll love it. I think you'll love it. Anyway, so Ilya, what is your close focus this week? I didn't think I was going to go down the sci-fi nerd fandom path, but I have to say I watched the trailer to the new Dune, which is going to uh, debut on HBO Max, and I gotta say, I'm pretty excited about Dune. I think Dune is going to be really cool. I think it's going to be a big hit, and I think that the the team that they've assembled for it, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be. I I got, I got nothing but fanboy love for it, and uh, I think that uh, I don't know. We're going to all be talking about Dune here in and not too distant future. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I think the trailer looks very interesting. I think I read the books when I was like a teenager, or the first book. I don't remember it very well, and uh, we obviously all. Uh, have whatever relationship we have with the David Lynch Dune movie. <laughs> I think that based on what I know of it, it was smart of them to take the first book and basically break it into two movies. So instead of trying to cram that whole book into one movie, cause it's dense stuff. Uh, you know, uh, sci-fi geeks have a lot to look forward to uh, this fall. We've got, uh, you know, Dune, there's uh, Matrix 4, there's going to be this new uh, animated Star Wars thing. I don't know if you've, you've seen that. And there's the new Spider-Man. Uh, I mean, there's like, there's a ton of stuff, like all kind of coming together in the last few months of this year. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be geekdom. Maybe that's because there was no Comic-Con. I, I don't know, but it's 
seems like there, there's no Comic-Con and we've all been locked in our mother's basements, as it were. So, you know, we a lot of sci-fi got made. This is really, you know, you had your rant earlier about, you know, the stereotypical horror fan, uh, you know, being a being a fallacy. But this really seems to be the episode for 15 year old boys. So that's fair. 15 year old boys need their episode no i mean i th- I think i mean the thing about dune is it looks epic it does like it just looks it's extremely epic so epic C- can i say something though yeah. I-, I don't know if there's a newer trailer but the the second trailer the first trailer was selling the epicness mm. the second trailer almost seemed to be selling that there was lots of comedy in it it was so weird it was like full of one-liners oh maybe i've only like, seen the first trailer then because it is like one-liners epic, are epic, a epic. weird choice yeah yeah i mean like I, it didn't it wasn't bad it was just like wow uh like when i when i think of dune i don't think of quippy one-liners i mean i'm not saying that they don't belong in the movie but and maybe maybe their market research showed that people uh were afraid of dune being too portentous that's a, a distinct possibility and you know seeing people kind of be a little more informal you know, I might diffuse that a little bit. It definitely has my eyeballs. I would love to go see it in the theater. I, I, I might have to like force myself to not watch it on HBO Max when it comes out. And, you know, uh, Zendaya certainly is having a moment here between Spider-Man and uh, and Dune. You're going to get an awful lot of, uh, mm. of her here uh, in giant movies uh, all coming up. So uh, I think she is on a rocket. So I uh, expect to see a, a lot more of her coming up here. But yeah, I, I got to say this trailer is is epic. And now I can't wait to see it. It'll be fun. Well, maybe we can include a link to any of the trailers to Dune in our show notes and people can check it out if they haven't already. Uh, It was uh, definitely when the first trailer dropped, I was like, it was definitely a must watch trailer. Just like when the whenever the Matrix 4 trailer drops, I will uh, stop whatever I'm doing, even if I'm driving a car or, you know robbing a bank whatever i'm doing at that moment i'm going to stop and i'm going to watch that matrix 4 trailer well uh the dune trailer has only been viewed 16 million 200 thousand times now so it's uh, only yeah so not not many other people have seen it so it's it's kind of a small elite group that we're we're in here having having (laughs) watched this maybe almost as small as the group of people who subscribe to macro room (laughs) the 1.6 million who are there yeah yeah Yeah. all right so so ben i think that's just gonna about do it for this episode where can people find you online if they want to have you yak some more at them please find me at benrockonline.com and you can find all my social media stuff i've been on if i do say so myself i've been really hilarious on twitter lately so uh so so go find me on twitter i'm just uh dad joking it up how about yourself well, I, I am not hilarious. So uh, you, you can find me at Hot Red Cameras, hotredcameras.com. That's where I spend most of my days. Uh, if not, you can find me on most of the other socials at Ilya Friedman. That's that's where I'm at. Ben, who do we have to thank? Well, I think we should start by thanking Ben Katz because, I'm, if I may say so, we did not make his job easy today at all. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry, Ben. It, it, we it, gave it, it ben was a bit a of a pile mess. Of feathers. <laughs> we gave Ben a pile of feathers and asked him to make a chicken out of it today. Oh, I thought you were going to say uh, I thought you were going to say like a down pillow for some reason. So, <laughs> sure, but you could. It's easy to make a down pillow out of a pile of feathers, but it's a lot harder to make a chicken. So uh, we should thank him. Then we should uh, also thank Kazal Atrachi, who, by the way, uh, I didn't even get into it, but after our last short ends, Kaze, man, oh man, did he hit me with some thoughts on Facebook? I, oh, wow. I feel like. We're almost in a countdown clock to bringing Kays on the show because he is, if anyone knows Kays, that man's got some opinions. (laughs) It's true. He does have opinions. All right. And, And lastly, and never, ever, ever leastly, holy crap. Where would we be without her? Our producer, Alana Cody, who, uh, we did an interview. I don't want to say what it was. 
but we did it uh, yesterday. Yesterday. And it was yeah. like one of those bucket lists, like maybe one day we can get that cinematographer on this show kind of interviews. I don't want to make any of our other guests feel uh, <laughs> insignificant, so I'm not going to so say, say who it was. So, yeah. It can all be your but, imagination uh, that it was you. So if you <laughs> but it, but it, it was one that was like a real, uh, it was just an amazing and it was interview. Great. We got it was a great so, such such great stories. It's why we're here to talk to talk to people who make you know just one of a kind imagery and and pick apart how they did it, how they made the career doing it, how they keep on doing it. So thank you, Alana, for keeping those going. We have several coming up as well, and uh, that's it. All right, thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.